0: This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University.
1: Welcome to our podcast series, Doing Translational Research. I'm Carl Pillimer, I'm the director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research and your host. And my guest today is Neil Lewis, Jr., who is an assistant professor of communication and social behavior at cornell university he's also uh, a faculty affiliate in our center for the study of inequality and the roper center for public opinion research he uh, got his b.a in economics and psychology from cornell so go big red <laughs> um, and his master's and phd in social psychology at the university of michigan his research that he's going to talk about with us today is broadly on how the interplay between social identity and social concepts shape motivation and goal-pursuit processes. And he uses this framework, or as we would say here, translates it, (laughs) to understand various kinds of social disparities, including disparities in education and health outcomes. Uh, So welcome to doing translational research, Neil.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, I wanted to ask you first just... uh, just perhaps for some general thoughts about your area of research, which is of great interest to me personally and, and a lot of us who do behavioral science translational research. Could you just give us an idea of the kind of questions your work addresses and uh, what sort of keeps you on your computer at <laughs> night?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you covered... Um a good bit of it in the um, introduction, but at the broadest level, I'm really interested in uh, what motivates people to pursue our goals. Um, how is our motivation influenced by our identities um, and the social situations that we find ourselves in? Um, so, you know, I study interactions between people and their environments in order to try and understand how and why we end up with um, so many disparities in society, particularly with a particular focus on education and health disparities. So, so those are the ones that keep me up at night.
1: And can I ask, how does someone like you uh, wind up in a department of communications? So what's Uh, the link there?
0: Yeah, um, so the communication department here um, is, to use uh, a buzzword on campus these days, radically uh, (laughs) interdisciplinary. Um, And so we've got a good mix of uh, communication scholars, um, psychologists, computer and information science, all people who um, are really committed to doing Work that addresses um, these important social problems and so, was um, a perfect fit uh, for me to join that department.
1: Well, that's great. And yet, two there are two. As I was looking over your research, two thoughts occurred to me, or, or two questions. One, in case folks aren't um, familiar with this, you know, we, um, we hear a lot about the issue of health disparities. Mm-hmm. But can you share a bit about why that issue is so important, or like what that means if someone is studying health disparities?
0: Yeah, so um, broadly, um, when I think about health disparities and a lot of the work in the area is looking at how do health outcomes um, differ for people of different backgrounds. So, um, for instance, we in the U.S., uh, we know that racial ethnic minority and low-income people tend to have worse um, health outcomes. And so um, what I've been trying to do in my work on that lens is really trying to understand well, why is that? Surely there are structural issues, but um, are there other social um, processes that might contribute to some of those disparities? Um, Yeah. Gotcha.
1: And again, how... uh, I know I'm asking you broad questions (laughs) in in a short time, but how does... I I guess for me, as someone who knows a little bit about the health disparities literature, um, the role of identity hadn't occurred to me Mm -hmm. as having read some of your stuff, but now it seems logical, but I, yeah. I hadn't really thought of it that way. How does identity fit into our understanding of health disparities?
0: Yeah, so I'll give uh, I guess a couple of different examples of kinds of studies they do in that area. So one thing is um, there can be identity threats in um, health situations. So um, people being concerned about uh, being viewed in negative lenses. So, um, one area that this plays out a lot is with doctor patient interaction. So if you have a, um, interaction with say a racial minority patient and a white doctor, uh, the patient might be worried about the doctors holding negative stereotypes about them. The doctor might be worried about uh, how the patient, um, might perceive them. And those, um, you know, stereotypes that are coming to mind, Um, can really influence the quality of those interactions so that's one way that identity can play out um another um, set of studies that i've been doing have been looking at um how people from different backgrounds uh pay attention to health message different kinds of health messages that are on display in clinics um and again um what we find is if the message is um stigmatizing um then um patients from some very kinds might be less likely to pay attention to it than others and so um this is the way that i've been thinking about the role of identity in health disparities how does it influence you know the kinds of things we pay attention to in health settings how does it influence the quality of doctor patient interactions um those things turn out to matter quite a bit for her. you know
1: do um those sort of does kind of ethnic diversity really affect it? I'm curious, so like if um, um, our center has close connections with New York City's, and um, and often we work on studies that compare white, Hispanic, and African-American populations. So like somebody coming out, like I know it calls for a generalization, but do the three groups tend to perceive the same message very differently?
0: So um, that I don't know as much, but what I do know is that... um, the three groups would, might pay a different amounts of attention to the message um, depending on the situation. So I've got a study where we show that um, black patients um, in a health clinic um, where an HIV prevention message is on display in the waiting room in the health clinic will pay less attention when there are lots of um, other black patients in the clinic. So it's the con- this concerns that other people in my community might uh, judge me negatively um, if that I'm paying really attention to it, um, seems to drive down attention in that context. Um, so that's one example of how, um, these concerns that come up, um, in this context can, uh, influence attention to the health, health message.
1: Well, that, that is really, uh, fascinating. And, uh, can I ask, I know, uh, I, uh, um, in a previous job, I know it sounds like you have perhaps done some translational kinds of Mm -hmm. things. And I wonder for you, does your work um, involve um, engagement of communities or community organizations or community members? And we're always interested in people's experiences of that and what they find both positive and challenging.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, A lot of my work and increasing amount of my work um, involves working with community members and community partners. Um, So, you know, when I first start out with ideas, I'll usually start with laboratory or online studies. Um, but once I have a bit of an understanding of um, core mechanisms, then I like to move out into the real world, um, and that requires connecting with community partners. Um, you know that's been really important for work I've done in schools. Um, it's been important for um, you know the health clinic study that I mentioned. Um, We actually have a study coming up this summer in New York City that um, involves working with uh, community partners to be able to run the study. So that's been a pretty big part of my work.
1: What leads you to uh, want to move out of, you know, using our easily available undergraduates (laughs) for research or online? Is that that something you've always been interested in? Because sometimes people transition into the idea, too, but it sounds like actually your research, like some of ours here in the mm-hmm. center, actually requires...
0: Yeah, exactly. You um, sort of
1: can't do it unless you... Argue. Yeah,
0: I mean, the um, the undergrads are useful for studying some topics, but um, the questions I'm most passionate about often require going out um, into the world and really studying the experiences of uh, these populations that I'm interested in. Um, uh,
1: so here in the center, we try to offer classes and workshops that help... they help give skills to researchers who don't really know how to do that kind of thing um what do you have thoughts of what it takes to be able to interact effectively with community partners or skills you need or what some tips for success are that or or things you or like ways to overcome challenges
0: yeah um that's a good question um
1: or what kind of problems have you ever (laughs) encountered have you uh have there been any barriers or has it been mostly smooth collaboration?
0: Most of the, um, most of the collaborations have gone fairly well. I mean, I was, did my graduate training with people who do intervention research out in the world. And so that was, that's just how I was trained. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that I learned a lot of skills along the way for that, um, which helped with, um, being able to do the work most of the challenges um so there's sort of two broad categories of challenges that come up one is an issue of timing um right academic research is slow um and community partners often want to know what you learned you know faster than the two years that it takes to get through peer review and so that's been um, one big challenge and something i'm constantly working on is figuring out how to communicate um you know the preliminary results while being clear about the uncertainties around it um, while things make it through the peer review process. Um, So that's been one challenge. Um, Another challenge that I don't know if it's unique to translational research, but there's an issue of politics that sometimes comes up um, where, you know, if people have particular agendas they're trying to achieve, um, you sometimes have to work uh, within that, within those parameters. So, I'll give an example from a school study I did a couple years ago. We were working on an academic intervention in public schools and, um, you know, we wanted to slowly roll things out to be able to test, um, mechanisms along the way. Um, and you know, the decision makers, they got why that would be the right approach scientifically, but you know, one was up for reelection who wanted to be able to say, look, we're doing something to improve our schools for all of our students. So uh, that was a challenge to figure out how can we balance maintaining the scientific integrity um, while also making sure they have something to say to their constituents who would be voting. Yeah,
1: that's, it's, it's, it's <laughs> even on the micro level. So often we'll hear, you know, the Mrs. Smith would be great in the treatment group. You know, is there any way she <laughs> can get out of the control group? I mean, you're right, so you have to do a lot of work with, uh, um, uh, with them. Yeah. Um, Uh, Um, thinking sort of in general about the work you do, Mm -hmm. are are there, like, if there were a couple of messages that you would like to get out to, uh, you know, the general public about the work you do that you think is like, Mm -hmm. you you know, like if you were given a translation machine, (laughs) what would you want it to broadcast out?
0: Um, well, one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately, um, in current, uh, discourse is, about the role of education in society. Um, And, you know, I do a lot of work on education uh, disparities and academic achievement more broadly. And I've noticed there's been um, a lot of debate about, well, is college actually something that um, provides enough public benefit that we should be funding it with taxpayer dollars? Um, You know, people seem to get the individual benefits that, yeah, those that go to college end up, you know, making more money and all those things. But the collective benefit seems to be lost sometimes. And so I think that's one message um, that I um, can provide some points on is that there is large benefits to societies. You know, populations with higher education have more civic participation, more economic growth, better functioning economies, um, and college graduates also provide uh benefits to uh the surrounding communities. So in the education space, for instance, we know that places um that college graduates move to, the qualities of the school, the local schools, elementary, middle school, high school, those go up. And that's not just because of the money. Um, uh, there are other um benefits um, to them being there in those communities. So I think that's something that um I've been thinking about lately. Right, and I would add, I mean,
1: for those of us who work at the other end of the lifespan, uh, there's very little that seems to prevent late-life problems like dementia. Mm -hmm. Um, An educational level is one of the strongest predictors of whether you develop something like Alzheimer's disease much later in the life course. Yeah. So, right, it would seem. Now, I will say in full disclosure, both of us work on the state side of Cornell, but still, (laughs) uh, I think that's that's a great point to get out to people, because I think that idea is even a little under threat of what good is college.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: That's great. Um, um, is there anything else along those lines that, that comes to mind?
0: Um, that's the core one that's, you know, top of mind right now, you know, reading these articles every day about um, seeing these debates about whether or not this is actually worth anything for society. Yeah, um,
1: because it does seem to also, like, it, it dovetails both with educational but also with health disparities.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely.
1: Yeah. So if there was... Um, Based on all this work you've done if uh if we were if people really listened to the research you were doing and actually did something based on it mm-hmm. um is there something that you know you would like to have happen or some change in either culture or society that would be helpful
0: um yeah, so the, what's the one thing? <laughs> um, you can even have more than one. <laughs> oh, good, because uh, it's really tough to narrow down to one uh, these days. Um, yeah, my initial reaction is, of course, um, related to the last point, that I do think we need substantial investment in um, our educa- public education um, system, you know, providing knowledge and skills do provide benefits, not only to the individuals, but the communities that those individuals are living in. So I think that's one important change that we can make. Um, And, you know, if we want a simple answer, we could stop there. (laughs) Uh, But but my second reaction, though, now thinking about the relationship to health, is um, to think about conditions under which that might not be enough, right? So another place that's top of mind lately is Flint, Michigan, Um, and um, Mm -hmm. what's going on there. Yeah, the water crisis. The water crisis. Um, And so, you know, if we took the education solution, right, like we find the best schools, the best teachers, we put them all there. Um, Is that enough? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, how well would kids be able to concentrate and learn in those great schools when they don't even have clean water? So that's the other um, thing that I've been thinking about, um, is can we do, can we advance both of these things at the same time? Cause I think that's really necessary to, um, maximize outcomes. Um, so I guess that's sort of a long way of saying <laughs> the, the more time I spend studying these problems, um, it's hard to generate simple, uh, solutions, but, um, I think we can produce some meaningful changes if, you know, a lot of us with these different expertise can come together.
1: Well, the reason why your <laughs> perspective, though, is, is is exciting to me is we operate here under the shadow of the great um, psychologist Yuri Bronfenbrenner, and you, you know, who argued that we have to look at these different systems and you, your work seems to use sort of individual level processes but place them in the context of, these, of both, you know, kind of social structures and opportunities for... Um, you know, kind of greater um, equality. It seems Mm -hmm. like it does connect, um, you know, these larger structures with individual development and what people can do in their own lives. Absolutely. Which is kind of unusual, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, um, I think that is the approach we have to take, though, to really understand and address um, these things. And in terms of how I got to um, thinking in this way, um, I think that is the benefit of the, my educational background here. So, you know, I, as you mentioned in the intro, I studied economics and psychology. Uh, what's not in that is I did my undergraduate research in sociology. <laughs> um, and so it's really take, <laughs> so it's taking approaches from all of these um, fields and um, pulling them together. That's just, I feel like that's really necessary to understand and get a handle on some of these problems.
1: Well, on that note, perhaps that's a good place for us to stop, although I wish uh, that we had more time together. And my guest is Neil Lewis, uh, who is doing outstanding work in the translational sphere, and it's great to have had you with us. And we hope all the rest of you who are listening will join us on our next episode of Doing Translational Research.
0: For information about translational research or the work of the Brainstrombrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.